Hello. Today we light the first candle of the Advent wreath. This is the candle of hope. With Christians around the world, we light this candle to help us prepare our hearts and our minds for the coming of God's Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we receive God's light as we hear these words from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 9-2 The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we look to the birth of Jesus, grant that the light of your love for us will help us be lights in the lives of those around us. Lord, I pray that we don't become numb to the miracle of your birth, but that we can be moved to awestruck, glory-giving praise and worship of you. Prepare our hearts for the joy and gladness of your coming. For Jesus is our hope. Amen. Advent. One of my favorite times of the year. Last, last week, as we, we began our Advent sermon series, Come Lord Jesus, we talked a little bit about uh, the, the true meaning of Advent, the original intent of Advent. We looked at Luke chapter 1, the classic Christmas story of the angel Gabriel coming and speaking to Mary, telling Mary what was to come. She will conceive and give birth to the Son of God himself. We began to explore this idea that, that the Advent season, its original intent was not only to celebrate the coming of the Christ child, but also to create a longing for his return, for the second coming. This week, as we continue in our Advent series, as we light these candles one by one over the next five services, for those of you that... that that makes you nervous because you haven't quite finished your Christmas shopping season. It's, it's even shorter than you think. It's not five weeks. It is five services. Four Sundays, including this one, and my weekly plug for our Christmas Eve service, 11 p.m., December 24th in the year of our Lord, 2019. It is an awesome time to come together and ring in Christmas morning uh, by candlelight as a church family. As we continue in this Advent series lighting these candles one by one. We are going to spend some time remembering the arrival of the Christ child and creating that longing for his return by focusing on the Christmasiest of Christmas books, the book of Revelation. It's the one we always go to when we think of the Christmas season, right? I am so excited about getting to spend the next few weeks in this book of Revelation. You know, my friend Jay Strother down at the church at Station Hill often tells a joke about the book of Revelation. He says that Revelation is the book Christians want to hear preached most because they don't know what it means. And Revelation is the book preachers want to teach least because they don't know what it means. The, the language and the imagery in this book is challenging. 
It is a text that we must approach with incredible humility and reverence. But it's a text that we must approach. You see, most of us, when we think about Revelation, our thoughts are formed almost exclusively by the books that we've read, the movies that we've seen, but rarely do we actually go to the text. Over the next four weeks, it's exactly what we're going to do. This book of Revelation was written by a man named John. John was one of the original 12 disciples that Jesus called at the beginning of his ministry. It was written probably around the mid-90s, like not the 1990s, but the actual 90s. John was a very old man at the time. He had seen it all. He was the last man standing among the disciples. All of the other disciples had passed on, martyred for their beliefs, martyred for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Several times John himself was nearly martyred. But here he sits in exile and writes this book of Revelation. You see, John was in exile because the political situation in Rome was a difficult one. There was a Caesar at the time named Domitian. He was a cruel, powerful man, cold-blooded in his power, as many Caesars were. One of his priorities was to return Rome to the traditional Roman religion, specifically elevating the god of Jupiter. In that pursuit, he also prioritized the destruction of the Christian church, which had grown in prominence over the previous decades, over the decades after the uh, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. John, over that time, had become sort of a bishop of the churches in Asia Minor. There were, there were seven major churches there in Asia Minor. John would have known each of them intimately. He would have known their pastors. He would have known their people. He would have probably been present and even preached in the churches at some point in time. He knew the type of pressure and persecution that these churches were under during the reign of this particular Caesar. The Roman government knew how important John was to the church, so they had him exiled to this tiny island called Patmos. Now, Patmos is in the middle of the Aegean Sea. When I say tiny island, I mean teeny tiny island. It was about six miles long and 10 miles wide. It was nothing more than a rock in the middle of the ocean. It was truly the middle of nowhere, complete and total isolation. Remember, there's no phones, there's no cable, there's no internet. When you were sent to Patmos, you were sent there to rot and to be forgotten. Now, the reason that the church sent John to this place was probably because in their minds, it was the worst punishment they could give him, worse than death. 
You see, all the other disciples had been martyred, had been executed in one way or another. But, but the Roman government knew if we send John to Patmos to live out his days in total and utter isolation, he would have to live there helpless while these churches he built died, knowing his entire life was for nothing. In their minds, there was no worse punishment. But you see, while John was on this tiny rock in the middle of the ocean, while John was exiled in Patmos, he had nothing to do but commune with his heavenly father, commune with God. We see this time and time and time again. The great leaders of the faith, they always have a season of wilderness, a season of isolation, a season where everything is taken away from them. We saw it in Moses. We saw it in Abraham. Jesus himself had his 40 days in the wilderness Billy Graham, Martin Luther, great leaders of the faith, time and time and time again have this season of isolation and wilderness where they are stripped of everything, have to rely solely on God, and invariably, God uses that time to prepare. He uses, he uses that time to grow his leaders. You see, Rome sent John to Patmos to get rid of him. But God brought John to Patmos to get his full attention. And while John was there, while John was in this place of isolation, stripped of everything but God himself, God gives John a revelation. We see in the very first chapter, chapter 1, verse 10, he says, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. You see, John stripped of everything. He didn't have his iPhone calendar giving him reminders. He didn't have friends or family. There was no work week that led into the weekend, yet he was keeping track. He knew the Lord's day. He knew the day that his churches were gathering together in this time of pressure and persecution to worship together, and he himself was going to worship with them. John recognized that his circumstances did not preclude him from worshiping. He was paying attention, and he wanted to worship with his brothers and sisters. And in that time of worship... God gives him a vision. You see, that's what this book of Revelation is. It's, it's the revelation of God that he gives John. And every time John writes about one of these visions, he says, I was in the spirit. I was in this place of worship. And in my worship, God gave me this vision. John was in isolation. Stripped of everything. Family. Friends, home, security, completely alone, and he was worshiping. Now, 
the visions, the revelations that John records. There's, there's a whole lot of, of confusion and even fear about this, this book, this book of Revelation. In fact, for a while it became a joke in my family, way early, 20 years ago. In, in the beginning years of my lay ministry, as I would teach Bible studies in small groups, we, we always would study a book of the Bible together. And it became a joke of when are you going to study Revelation? Because you see, my wife knew I was terrified of Revelation. It, it's full of strange imagery and dragons and horses and swords. And it, to me, it just seemed almost like a bridge too far. Let's just stick to first and second Corinthians. If you want to get crazy, we can do some old Testament stuff, but revelation, eh, I don't know about that one. This morning, if you don't hear me say anything else, I want you to hear me say this revelation is not about dragons and gleaming robes and multi-headed lions Revelation is about the unveiling, the revelation of the fullness of Jesus Christ himself. It says in the very first words of the very first verse of the very first chapter that this is the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. You know, you've watched that movie that, that somewhere toward the end, you, you have this montage and it starts to put together kind of all the clues and hints that you've been given during the movie and suddenly all the plot lines come together and you see what it was all about. Usual suspects. Remember, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Usual Suspects and you don't want to know, earmuffs. Usual suspects at the end. Suddenly there's the montage and it all comes together and we see that Kaiser Soze no, not only exists, but his true identity. That's revelation. The unveiling of the true identity and power of Jesus Christ. This may be the first time in history that Kaiser Soze has been compared to Jesus Christ, but I stand by it. Um, Maybe a better illustration is many commentators use the illustration of a tapestry. And our lives are like standing behind this tapestry as it's woven. And we see the different colored threads coming through and, and they weave together. And maybe we can make out some color blocks, but we really have no idea until one day that tapestry is turned around and we see the beautiful, artistic, glorious picture of what has been woven together. That is the book of Revelation. It is the full picture of who Jesus is and always has been. Revelation is not a book about what is to come. There are elements of that. There are prophetic words in this book, no doubt. John does celebrate and anticipate the second coming of Jesus. But Revelation is not a book about what is to come. It is a book about what is. John does not tell us that Jesus will someday be on the throne. 
John tells us that Jesus is on the throne right now. At its core, at its essence, Revelation is a book about worshiping. Written while worshiping by a man who led worship to churches who needed worship about whom they should worship. And what better book to study during this season that we celebrate the coming of the Christ child than one that leads us to worship. And what better place to start than in the throne room itself. Would you turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. Stand with me as we read God's Word together. After this, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit. And there in the throne, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and the throne, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had the face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside, day and night. They never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, O Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Father, this morning, as you gave John so long ago, give us this vision. Burn it on our hearts. It is in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. I'll be seated. 
All right. Let us briefly address the elephant in the room. Revelation 4, the scene pictured in it is bonkers. It is a scene that if we brought it to a Hollywood studio, they would say, "Uh uh-uh, I don't think so. What we must remember is that John, given these absolutely, wholly, entirely true visions, divine visions, is desperately attempting to describe them using human language, which will always fall short. It is why throughout the book of Revelation, why throughout Revelation chapter 4, we see John using language like, it was as though, it appeared as, it was like. John is trying to use human language to describe a divine scene. We know in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that Jesus dwells in an unapproachable light. No eye can see on this side of eternity. So what does John do? John reaches back to the words he knows, to the word pictures he knows, to the descriptions he knows. He reaches back to the Old Testament to try to describe this vision that God has given him. You see, throughout the book of Revelation, throughout these visions, we see God weaving his redemptive plan. We see God acting on and fulfilling the promises he has given us since the very first chapters of Genesis. At the end of John's first vision, at the end of chapter 3, we see John, Jesus through John, promising his people, promising the church at Laodicea that he would share his throne with them. You need to understand how revolutionary that would be to the people listening. You see, when the, when the church would have heard about a throne, it meant one thing and one thing only, and that was the Roman Empire. Never before, perhaps never since, has there been a ruler that sat on his throne willing to share it. Certainly Caesar was not that ruler. Caesar, Caesar was cold-blooded, power-hungry. Those that stood up to his throne, they had seen time and time again, were at risk for losing their family, losing their homes, oftentimes losing their lives. Jesus, in this very first vision given to John, wants to let his people, my throne is something altogether different. And then in chapter 4, we see John's second vision. We know that from verse 2 when he says, immediately I was in the Spirit. Those are the key words throughout Revelation. I was in the Spirit. This begins the vision. And what Jesus does, because he has the authority, is he opens the door to the throne room to let John in to see 
to see what it looks like in the throne of the eternal living God of the universe. And in doing so, as Jesus ushers John into the throne room, the very first thing he sees is the one sitting on the throne. Amidst all of the other stuff that's going on, this scene that is absolutely bananas, a sea that looked like glass and crystal and, and beast with eyes all over them and thunder and lightning and 24 other thrones with guys sitting on, sitting on the thrones with, with crowns. John walks in and laser focus his eyes immediately. Go to the throne of the living God and the one sitting on the throne. It's how magnificent it was. He says it was like the one on the throne was covered in these precious stones, these precious jewels. The jewels that he mentions would have been stones that reflected the entire spectrum of light. Every color imaginable. Radiating. From the one sitting on the throne. And then in verse 3, we see that a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen a rainbow in the scriptures, right? When is the first time we saw a rainbow in the scriptures? Genesis chapter 9, the story of Noah. The rainbow God gives Noah as a symbol of God's covenant with man. Now, in our lives, we have all seen a rainbow. But the rainbow we see starts at one end of the horizon, ends at the other. We only see Half here in the throne room, the entire rainbow surrounds the throne. What we now only see in part, one day we will see in full. Years and years ago, as Nick and I were preparing to go to the mission field, we we got my visa. We were waiting on her visa. We had a plane ticket. We had our big uh, goodbye party here in Nashville. All of our friends and family that we had known for so long, you know, we, we had the time to say goodbye to them. We then found out that Nick's visa was probably going to take a couple of extra weeks. And you know how when you go to a restaurant to eat dinner with friends and at the end of a great meal, you say goodbye to them? And then you both leave and your car's parked in the same direction. And you have kind of that awkward, I've, now I don't know what to do. Well, we didn't want a whole life like that in our city. We had already said bye to everybody. So we thought it's just a couple of weeks. We'll go down to Atlanta where my parents were living at the time, spend some time with them as we wait on this final visa to get here. Two weeks turned into a month. A month turned into six months. As bad as that was, it was made worse by the fact that every week for six months, we heard from the consulate, not ready yet, it'll be ready next week. It was one of the most frustrating 
confusing, and quite frankly, depressing periods of my life. I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. Years later, as we were able to look back on that period with a little more perspective, in retrospect, we saw all of the amazing things that God was doing in that period of waiting in our life. The roots that we were able to plant in a community we had never really been, the relationships we were able to build that, that persist to this day, the prayer supporters that came alongside us in our time in cross-cultural ministry in Italy, an entire other church that we barely knew that rallied around us and embraced us. In the middle of it, we could not see the full picture. But what we now only see in part, one day we will see in full. As John sees the throne, the one sitting on the throne, radiating with the full spectrum of light, a full rainbow like an emerald surrounding it. Suddenly we see him kind of take a step back and begin to notice all of the other things that are in the throne room with him. At first, John describes these four creatures covered in eyeballs, One that looks like a lion. One that looks like an ox. One that looks like a man. One that looks like an eagle. What John is describing in this vision is creation itself. The lion, the symbolic king of the wilderness, the ox, the symbolic king of the domesticated beasts and labor, the soaring eagle, the the symbolic king of the air and everything that surrounds the earth, man from the very beginning from creation, the king of creation. John says creation itself, everything created was there, covered front, back, inside, and out with with eyes, all seeing, never blinking. You see these eyes, they see everything. They see what has happened behind They see what is happening now. They see what is going to happen. They see outside. They see inside. And how do they respond in the throne room? They respond in worship. Day and night, never ceasing, singing, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. What stops us in worshiping? It's the fact that we can't see it all. We don't see it all. We live this life with with tunnel vision. So often only able to take in that thing that is right 
in front of us. We live this season seeing the baby and not the king. It is when we see the vision, when we recognize the throne room, that Jesus sits on that throne right now, that we begin to worship. As these beasts worship, John describes for us these 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones. Now understand this. The vast and overwhelming majority of the time, numbers in the Bible mean something. That is doubly true for the book of Revelation. These numbers have deep meaning. 24 isn't a number that's just pulled out of the air. 24 hours in a day, perhaps. How many tribes of Israel were there? How many disciples did Jesus call at the beginning of his ministry? Twelve. The 24 elders, all of God's people, those from the old covenant, those from the new covenant, called to worship at the feet of the throne. How do they respond? By throwing down their golden crowns, these symbols of of power, these symbols of success, these symbols of wealth and victories won, and they worship our Lord and God. You are worthy to receive power and honor and glory because you have created all things. And by your will, they exist and they were created. You see, as John writes about his visions, they follow an incredibly consistent pattern. Revelation and response. Revelation and response. The beasts see the one on the throne and they worship. The elders see the one on the throne and they worship. And so this vision calls for a response from us as well. The only response to what is taking place right now in the eternal throne of heaven is to understand that we are created to worship. Worship defines us. Make no mistake, we are all worshipers. And we are all Worshiping something. If you want to know what is on the throne of your heart, you follow the trail. Consider this week how you are using your time your energy, your resources, your efforts. Consider where your thoughts drift when you are alone.
Are you worshiping the things of this world? Are you worshiping comfort? Are you worshiping security? Are you worshiping your stuff? Or are you captivated by the God of the universe? The God that that loved you so much that he sent his only son to be born to a poor family in a horse stall specifically to pay your price. The God that, that loved you so much, he made a way so that you might be with him forever. The God that has invited you to be where he sits in an indescribable scene on an eternal throne. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are humbled. We are amazed by your presence with us here in this building, knowing, fully understanding that you occupy the throne of heaven. Burn that vision on our hearts. So that we inevitably respond by worshiping the one true creator of the universe that loved us so well. He sent his son to be in that manger so that he would someday be on that cross. So that tomb would someday be empty and we can know him today. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.